pages 100 and 101. Pages 100 and 101 in your pew Bible, or it's also in your large print sheet. Very familiar words. This is going to be a reading of the Ten Commandments, the first giving of them, the first giving of the law, Exodus 20, reading verses 1 through 17. Exodus 20, reading verse 1 through 17. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. My friends, this is the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, of course, are continuing on a series on the law of God, a series on the law of God. Uh, the last several weeks, we've talked about three uses of the law, using to uh, use the uh, 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 acronym of an old uh, uh, pesticide, DDT. The law demonstrates that we are sinners. The law, it, it demonstrates like holding up a mirror to us and we look at it and we don't like. We, we see all of the, the, the dirt, all the grime, not just on our face, but in our heart. It demonstrates we're sinners. It drives us then to a choice. It drives us either further into our sin or it drives us to, to Jesus. It shepherds us to Jesus. And then thirdly, it teaches us, it teaches us how to live. 
It does so as we understand how Jesus himself fulfilled the law and how the law is therefore to be fulfilled in us. This is part of God's plan for us. God gave us his law. We just read it. He gave us his law. And so it teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves. So you know, of course, how many commandments there are in the Ten Commandments. There are ten. In the the moral law, there are ten commandments. These ten summarize our duty before God. We had in our catechism questions today that the moral law is summarily comprehended, summed up in a comprehensive way in the Ten Commandments. Everything about your life falls under one or more of these commandments. And each commandment, so, so let me just pause here and say, there's not one thing in your life that does not fall under one or more of the Ten Commandments. Not one thing. You can always relate back to the law of God. And furthermore, each commandment requires certain things and forbids other things. So even though all, even though eight of the ten are put in as prohibitions, you shall not, and two of them, of course, are put in positive way, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and to obey your parents, uh, honor your father and your mother. Those are put positively. The ones that are put positively also have the opposite that is prohibited and vice versa. Those that are put negatively, you shall not, also means you shall do this, that, or the other thing. And that's what we're going to be looking at today as we consider what the first commandment requires. Now, notice also here that the preface by Moses, so you see here in chapter 20, verse 1, you see that Moses is offering a preface, a, um, uh, an introduction to the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying. So, to be sure, this was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Moses wrote this, but nevertheless, they are also the words of Moses. So this is his preface. And in this preface, in verse 1, Moses is telling us, first of all, that this is a law of God's own making. It's God's law. But secondly, that it is a law of God's own speaking. And God spoke all these words saying, And my friends, whenever God speaks, listen, listen, children, listen. But then, verse 2, we have the preface by God himself. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so this tells us then why we are to obey the law. First of all, it tells us we are to obey the law because God is the Lord. God is the Lord. You see, in verse 2, do you see where it says, I am the Lord your God? You see it's got capital L, and then it's got small capital R, small O, small capital R, small capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's a reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the covenant, the only Lord, the one who is the I am, the one who is the creator, 
the one who is self-existent, the one who is independent. He doesn't depend upon us. The one who is eternal, the one who is the foundation of all being, that God, the true and the living Lord, he who has created all and by whom all things consist has the right to command everything. So, why do we obey the law? Because God is the Lord. Secondly, because God is the God of the covenant. He says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. Now, he is their God by their own consent. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua says. And the people said, we will serve the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 5, those that by sacrifice have made a covenant with me. But also what we need to realize is that the reason why we are able and even have the desire to enter into covenant with him is because God has first established his covenant with us and then gives us the very desire to own him as our own. And so you find then in, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7 and uh, verse 6, Deuteronomy 7 and uh, verse 6, where we read, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Uh, Chapter uh, 14 of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 14 and verse 2, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And 26 of Deuteronomy, 26, and verse 18. Also, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you. And then he goes on, that you should keep all his commandments. And so God is the God of the covenant. He is bound to us covenantally. He has promised And he will not renege on that promise. So we are his. We we belong to him. He we he he are his, he is ours. God is the one who fundamentally makes covenant with us and enables us then by his grace to own him for ourselves. So he is the Lord your God, but also we are to obey the law. Because he is the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God showed to them so great a kindness in bringing them up out of Egypt. This refers to the deliverance of Israel from 430 years of bondage. And God brought them up out of that. He redeemed them for his own glory. And let us also be clear that as he did so, he spoiled Egypt... And as he did that, he made fun of their gods, showing that he is the only true God, showing that the gods of Egypt, whether that of the Nile or that of the sun or that of the frog, ribbit, ribbit, you remember children? (laughs) Who sent the frogs? The true God did, showing that the magicians of Egypt had nothing, had no power before him. He made fun of him, he mocked 
the false gods of Egypt. And so at the same time that he drew, he brought his people out of bondage. God freed them from slavery, a great token of his love and favor. Now we know how this is applied to us today. It's applied to us today particularly. It was applied back then to be sure. It was a picture, was it not, of deliverance from sin and Satan and death. So we're not in bondage in Egypt, but we have been in bondage to sin and Satan and subject to death. And God is the one who by his grace, the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is the one who is our God with whom we have a covenant relationship. He is the one who has freed us from all those things. And therefore, we should keep his law. Now, the Ten Commandments form a unit. They hang together. You can't have one without the other. James 2, verse 10 says, If you offend in one law, in one aspect of the law, in one particular, you're guilty of all. Let us also note that there is no morality without religion. We talk about we need this, this world needs more morality. Well, that's true, but that's not the essence. It need, and it not only does it not need more religion per se, it needs more of Christ. It needs more of the true and the living God. There is no morality without religion. Notice the necessity of keeping the first four commandments in order to keep the last six. The first four deal specifically with our relationship with God. No gods before him, no graven image. Um, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the last six, dealing more with our relationship with our fellow man. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill, and so forth. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness, and do not covet. So, in order to keep the last six, we also need to pay attention to the first four, which are of a higher order. Morality is conformity to the moral law of God. And without God, there is no moral law. If a man disregard the higher law, he will not keep the lower. The highest duty that we have is to God. Righteousness and sin, then, are in terms of obedience to and rebellion against God. So when we talk about morality, we're not talking about some external thing just hanging out there, some neutral kind of, of thing we all agree on. No, morality is defined by the law of God, which is to say it is defined by God. And indeed, all sins break the first commandment. This is why in Psalm 51, in his prayer of repentance, David, in terms of the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband to try to cover up the adultery, what does he say? Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. So all sins ultimately break the first commandment because when we rebel, effectively we are replacing our allegiance to God with something else. Now, two other brief words of introduction today. One is what we call the spirituality of the law. 
Romans 7.14 tells us that the law is driven by, animated by the Holy Spirit. Paul says very clearly, the law is spiritual. When you see that word, pneumatikos, or spiritual, in the New Testament, with one exception, it always refers to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so that's what, that's what Paul is saying. The law is spiritual. That is to say, it's not a dead letter. It is driven by, it's part of the word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it is spiritual in that sense. But it is also spiritual because it deals with inward things, not just external acts. Man can look only at what's on the outside, but God searches the heart. God searches the heart. Isn't this what we find when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you've heard it said, such and such, but I say to you, if a man looks on a woman with lustful eyes, he's already committed a violation of the seventh commandment. God searches the heart, and the law searingly, just like a bright light. You ever experience, oh, like going to the eye doctor, right? Everyone's been there. That and the dentist. Those are the, I think the eye is worse for me. Oh, I can't stand that light when the, when the doctor shines that. Oh, it's all I can do to hang in there. But that's what God, that's what the law does to us, does it not? It searingly brings to light the inner recesses of the soul. And finally, by way of introduction, then, notice the sum and the substance of the law. It is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. This is what Jesus taught us. This is what it's all about. It's about love. There's no contradiction between law and love. Law gives the substance to the love that we are to show to God. I love you, Lord. You are my strength, as we sang from Psalm 18 a few minutes ago. We see then that love is the basic requirement of the law, and the Ten Commandments then deal with two basic issues our relation to God, our relation to others, or our love for God and our love for others. It's, in a sense, it's really very simple. It's challenging. It's gut-wrenching at times. It's tough. But in a sense, it's very simple. It boils down to that. Do you love God? Really love him? And do you really love others? That's what the law is all about. And so the law then is summarily comprehended, it is summed up in the Ten Commandments. As we note it, we can find any sin under one or more of these commandments. And this is precisely so because whatever is forbidden, the opposite is required and vice versa. Well, with that by way of, of introduction then today, let me say that the first commandment, we're only going to deal with one of these three asks today. The law requires us to do three things. It requires us to know, to worship, and to obey God. The law requires us to know, to worship, and to obey God. Or the law tells us whom we are to know, to worship, and to obey. And so today, then, I want us to talk about knowing God, knowing God. Well, the first thing in order to know 
uh, in terms of the knowing of God is the knowledge about him. We must know, first of all, that God is, that God really exists. We can't be atheists. We can't be agnostics. We must know that God really is there. Or as Francis Schaeffer put it, he is there and he is not silent. Furthermore, we must know what God is in all of those attributes, those qualities, those characteristics and perfections whereby he makes himself known. Ignorance, my friends, is not bliss. You've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Well, no. When it comes to God, ignorance is not bliss. We must know who God is before we can know him. We must know who he is. God does not tolerate idolatry. He has revealed himself in creation. He has revealed himself in Christ and in the scriptures. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, when we, when we talk about God, people may have different ideas about that. But if, if you were to describe myself, say, oh, Frank Smith. Oh, I know Frank Smith. He's 30 years old. He's a star athlete. <laughs> he can slam the basketball. Um, red hair. Um, you wouldn't be talking about the same Frank Smith. So it is, so therefore, therefore, if we're going to know God, we must know who he really is. So what are some of his attributes? What are some of his characteristics? Now I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to so follow along as I make these references. First of all, John 4, verse 24. I'm sure you know the verse. But if you have a chance to turn with me to there. John 4, verse 24. John, the Gospel of John, in which, in which we hear Jesus say, God is spirit. King James is this a spirit, but literally is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here we find the spirituality of God. He doesn't have, he does not have then, uh, his, um, uh, he uh, does not have a body like men. He has no he has no, bought no physical existence. He is pure spirit, and that's what Jesus is saying here. There are some folks who say God is like us, or we can become like God. False, wrong, wrong. Also, is infinity. First Kings uh, chapter eight. First Kings chapter eight, and uh, verse uh, twenty-seven. This is when Solomon is giving the prayer of dedication to the temple. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold heaven, and the heaven of heavens can contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. In other words, God is infinite. You can't put him in a box. And because he's infinite, he is therefore incomprehensible. We don't, we will never even in eternity, we will never fully comprehend who God is because he's infinite. He's also 
eternal. Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses, Psalm 90, and uh, uh, verse 2, Psalm 90 and verse 2, where uh, Moses writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is eternal, and if he never had a beginning, and he has, he has no end. Now, I must confess, when I first started thinking about that when I was about nine years old, it was kind of like getting a headache as you were thinking about that. It's hard enough for us to understand what it's going to be like for eternity future, but eternity past, where God has ever, 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 ever existed forever? But it's true. We can't comprehend that. But it is true, and therefore, that's the God of the Bible. That's the God who, is, who exists. He is unchangeable. There is, as James 1 says, no with whom there is no variableness of turning. He's not fickle. He's not an Indian giver. He's not going to say one thing and do another. God is unchangeable. So he's a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his ways. He is, he is this way in terms of his wisdom. Psalm 147 and verse 5, 147 and verse 5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. He is the God who knows all things. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. He is God Almighty, the Omnipotent One. Genesis 17, Revelation 19, and therefore he is totally sovereign over all. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. Is this not what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, where he saw where he saw the Lord's glory, saw the Lord high and lifted up the temple. He saw those, those seraphim, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is totally other than we are, totally different, but one who then condescends. He is infinite, eternal, and changeable in his justice. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. Psalm 100 and verse 5. Psalm 100 and verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. So there we see the goodness of God. He is totally good. He's totally just, but he's totally good at the same time. Sometimes those things are hard for us to put together. But he is totally good. He is a God of love. He's a God of truth, as we find here in this verse. His truth endures to all generations. And the shortest psalm, Psalm 117 and verse 2, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. 
But God is also a triunity, a trinity. Yes, he has essential oneness. The Lord, the Lord our God is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6. But at the same time, this true and living God has forever existed in three persons. And that's why we read, for example, in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, equal, co-equal, same in substance, equal in power and glory. But one more thing I want to mention as we talk about the attributes of God, his characteristics. He is also a personal God. Notice what he says here. He says, I brought them. I brought you out of Egypt. He's not an impersonal God. He's a personal God whom we can know. Which leads us then, that's all the knowledge about him. Now we talk about the knowledge of him. For you see, it's one thing to have this theoretical knowledge. It's another thing to own it for ourselves. We must acknowledge that he, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the one true and living God. And we must own him for our very own. The one who is before us always. So, by way of application today, three points. First of all, you must recognize the one true and living God. This is a requirement of this commandment. Not a God of your imagination. Not a God of your imagination. But a God who actually, really exists. The true and the living Lord. In Isaiah uh, 43... In Isaiah 43, we read that all the nations gathered together, let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. The eternal, infinite God who eternally exists in three persons, that is the God who is alive. Secondly, You must proclaim the truth of God. Each of us, as I read just a moment ago, uh, God here says, you are my witnesses. Each of us is a witness. Verse 12 as well of Isaiah 43. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Each of us is a witness for him. Each of us, and together as the church, are to bear witness to this true and living God. Again, not to a false God, not to a God of our imagination, not saying to the world, oh, well, you have your God and we have ours. There is only one true and living God. It is the God of the Bible. 
together, then we are God's servant. That singular pointing to someone, the servant, the servant who is Jesus Christ, the servant par excellence, beyond compare, the servant, you are my witnesses, God says. And thirdly, as we acknowledge the true God and proclaim his truth, you must have faith in Jesus. In John chapter 8, as we read today, Jesus clearly claimed to be the I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. And the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they tried to stone him and kill him at that point, because they regarded that as blasphemy. But Jesus was being truthful, was he not? Jesus clearly claimed to be God himself, to be one of the members of the Trinity. Uh, Before Abraham was, I am. And so if you're going to acknowledge the true God and proclaim his truth, you must have faith in Jesus. This is what we see when doubting Thomas saw Jesus after the resurrection. Remember? Remember children? Remember doubting Thomas said it wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared that Lord's Day evening. You remember that? After the resurrection. And Thomas doubted. He said, unless I can put my finger into the print in the nail, the nail print in the hands, unless I can thrust my fist into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared to him then the next Lord's Day, the next Sabbath. And when Thomas saw him, what did he confess? My Lord and my God. That must be true of us. If we would keep the first commandment, particularly if we would keep this commandment in terms of knowing the true and the living God. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And Father, we thank thee for thy word of truth. We pray, Lord, that thy spirit, the same spirit that brooded over the waters of creation, the same spirit who um, wrote the scriptures, we pray that that same spirit would apply the word to our hearts here this day. May we all know thee, the true and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. We pray in Christ's name.